Hey there, here and now, anytime listener. If you like this show, we'd love it if you followed us or subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Also, I know you hear this a lot, but if you can leave a rating or a review while you're at it, we would really appreciate it. It just takes a second and it helps us a lot. Of course, you can also tell your friends to subscribe. That helps too. And thanks. Now here's the show. It's, it's, jazz is not supposed to be something that you're required to sound like jazz. For me, the, the word jazz means I dare you. Remembering Wayne Shorter, whose musical footprints blazed the trail for jazz. It's Friday, March 3rd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we'll reflect on the life and career of one of the greatest jazz musicians ever. And we'll hear from people left in the lurch by DC's decision to cut food stamps. But first, to other news in Washington. The House Ethics Committee decided to formally investigate Congressman George Santos, the Republican from New York. There's plenty to look into after he was caught having lied or exaggerated huge parts of his resume and life story on the campaign trail. The committee says it'll look into his business practices, his campaign spending, and an allegation of sexual misconduct that Santos has denied. Santos tweeted that he's fully cooperating. Meanwhile, President Biden angered some of his fellow Democrats yesterday by siding with Republicans on a bill that would repeal criminal justice reform measures in the District of Columbia. Plenty to talk about, as usual, with our Friday political roundtable. Scott Tong and Peter O'Dowd were joined this week by Francesca Chambers of USA Today and Rick Klein of ABC. The House Ethics Committee has begun to investigate one of its own. George Santos, the New York Republican, widely reported to have fictionalized his bio. The committee will look into his business practices, campaign spending, and an allegation of sexual misconduct that Santos has denied. The congressman says he is cooperating. Meanwhile, President Biden raised a few eyebrows yesterday when he told Senate Democrats he won't stop Republicans from repealing Washington, D.C.'s new overhaul of its criminal code. Let's get to that story and to other news with our Friday Politics Roundtable. Francesca Chambers is White House correspondent at USA Today, and Rick Klein is ABC News political director. It's great to have both of you back with us. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. And let's start with crime and the politics of it. The Washington, D.C. City Council passed a crime bill that updates its criminal code. It reduces some penalties, but the thing is Congress can overturn D.C. laws. And there is a movement to undo this one. President Biden seems ready now to let that happen. Here's the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. The president doesn't support changes like lowering penalties for carjacking. So this piece is different. But again, it doesn't change the administration strongly supporting H.R. 51, uh, which would have made uh, D.C. the 51st state. Francesca, some Democrats say they were led to believe that Biden would veto it. He's not going to. Is this a flip flop? This is a really unique situation where you have Democrats now saying that they would like to give the local city the ability to create its own laws. And often you hear this argument from Republicans, right, that the federal government shouldn't be so heavy handed, that cities and states 
uh, should, under the, the theory of federalism, be able to create their own laws. But you have a GOP-led movement, because they're concerned about crime, to override this, this law, essentially, in Washington, D.C. And now you have Democrats like AOC and also President Biden saying, um, you know, taking a, a different look at this. So it's a very interesting uh, issue that's pitting, you know, some Democrats like AOC against Biden. And also you have moderates who are also joining um, with Republicans on this issue. And Rick, um, I wonder how you, you're you reading this, some House Democrats who voted to support the D.C. City Council and its autonomy say they have been hung out to dry by the White House. Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating uh, recent political developments because uh, this is an issue where the mayor of Washington actually vetoed this uh, the, these changes. She didn't think it was a good idea. She had that veto overridden. Then Congress appeared to try to back up what that veto would mean, but the mayor says, no, you know what? I'd rather see self-governance in Washington, D.C. That has been the mm-hmm. longtime Democratic Party uh, vision of it. But Joe Biden took a look at this. The White House took a look at this and said, this is a case where you're talking about uh, essentially being portrayed as soft on crime, uh, lessening mandatory minimums for violent crimes. Uh, that's what the mayor originally said as well. And that's where President Biden is landing. And he's saying, look, as long as D.C. is not a state, um, until or unless it's a state, uh, I'm going to look for areas where where there there is federal oversight. That is a break with where the Democratic Party has traditionally been. It's enraged some some of his allies, but it, it puts uh, moderate Democrats, to Francesca's point, on a firmer political footing to not have to take what would have been a, a difficult vote. So that's one big American city, Washington, D.C. What about Chicago, Francesca? Crime uh, was a top issue on voters' mind in the mayor's race. Homicides spiked in that city during the pandemic, and the incumbent, Lori Lightfoot, we know this week, lost her effort to become the mayor again. Is there a message in Chicago that ripples beyond nationally as well? Well, that could be a potential meeting uh, uh, that could potentially be something that the White House and Democrats are also looking at. You have that coming at the same time as this D.C. crime bill comes before Congress. You also have polling that shows that crime is something that's very concerning to Americans, especially as we look forward to the next election. We know that in the midterm elections that that was an issue that was on voters' minds as they gave Republicans control of the House of Representatives. So you add all of those things up together, you look at Joe Biden's recent move, and you can you can definitely see that there are political undertones here of at least where the White House is at on this particular issue as Joe Biden prepares to launch what we expect to be a re-election bid. Rick, you're heading over to cover the uh, the CPAC conference, the Conservative Political Action Conference, just outside of Washington, D.C., President Former President Trump is going to be there, as well as Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor. But many important people are not going. Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy. So, you know, CPAC before gained so much attention on the political right. How relevant is this one? Yeah, I, to me, it's a it's really interesting to see that the road to the Republican nomination might not travel through CPAC. And in fact, there's a gathering of the Conservative Club for Growth in Florida that, that's probably going to get more presidential contenders, including Ron DeSantis in his home state. Uh, and I think it's it speaks more largely to the, the splits inside the Republican Party and the conservative movement. It's not necessarily the activist base, uh, the very MAGA-friendly CPAC crowd that is going to determine who the choice is for the Republican Party. It could be some of the money out there, the Koch Brothers organization, as well as Club for 
for growth signaling. They don't think Trump is the right call for them, for the Republicans this time. And you're seeing, I think in part because of scandals surrounding CPAC, in part because of the perceived uh, MAGA coziness of that of that crowd, that there's other avenues out there. And, and, and also the DeSantis factor is a huge one. The fact that he's the biggest name out there short of Trump, and he still isn't running. He's got a book coming. He's booked that just came out. He's got his legislative session starting next week. We're going to see him in both California at the Reagan Library and Iowa inside mm-hmm. the next seven days, which will be really interesting. And just quickly, what is the scandal yeah. at CPAC? It has to do with the the president of the of CPAC, Matt Schlapp. There's a an allegation of sexual assault that's been leveled by a former campaign aide to Herschel Walker, the former the failed Senate candidate. Uh, he Schlapp has denied the allegations, and most of his allies are sticking with him. But it's it's put enough of a cloud over his leadership and his time there that uh, a couple of Republicans who might otherwise be there have decided this might be a good year to skip. Right. And Francesca, what do you make of that? The fact that DeSantis and other Republicans are staying away from CPAC. Are they trying to make a statement? Well, I think that Rick is exactly right about it. It's showing that there is this continued split in the Republican Party that they're going to have to figure out over the next year over where they want to see the Republican Party go. Do they want Donald Trump, but not uh, Trumpism in the same exact way as they had in the past? Or do they want to see someone like Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo take up that mantle and take up the same exact policies, but not be Donald Trump and the things that they don't like about Donald Trump? And you see the Club for Growth not inviting Donald Trump to their confab, which is taking place behind closed doors, as one example of that. Another big thing, though, about the folks who are attending that, such as Ron DeSantis, is this is an opportunity for them to get in front of voters as or sorry, donors. As Rick was saying, yes, there are activists who go to CPAC. But if you are trying to build up an operation and get money for your presidential race, maybe you say, hey, I want to get in front of the donors instead. Uh, Francesca, um, the Fo- Fox News, Brian Kilmeade was in Florida this week and he asked people for their picks in the 2024 race. Most said Trump. A couple people said Nikki Haley. You mentioned Nikki Haley. And then Brian Kilmeade approached a woman wearing a DeSantis shirt. Let's take a listen. I see uh, Governor DeSantis. What about President DeSantis? I like it. I like uh, it. Who's your pick? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Trump or DeSantis? I'm either or. Either or. Francesca, what does that tell you? That it's really early. In, in the cycle, there hasn't even been the first debate. DeSantis hasn't announced a presidential campaign. A number of these would-be candidates haven't announced presidential campaigns. And so once you get closer to that first debate later in the summer and also voters have an opportunity to see them on stage, I do think that you would potentially see a shift in those numbers of who folks are supporting. Right now you're seeing almost everybody else uh, get in the single digits or potentially in the double digits in certain states, particularly their home states. But I think that you'll see a lot of movement around this later on in the summer. Voters just don't know who their choices are yet and Mm -hmm. don't know much about their records. We consistently see that in polling. Rick, we're going to shift to uh, Congressman George Santos. Uh, There are a lot of questions about his personal story that we've been trying to work out for many, many months now. He's also got some dodgy looking finances because suddenly when he campaigned, his salary skyrocketed. He got a million dollars in dividends from a company he owns. Does it matter that he's now being investigated by his own peers in Congress? 
This is a new one to me. Usually the ethics committee says we're going to investigate um, X lawmaker over X, Y, and Z allegations. This is a whole separate subcommittee just to look at George Santos and sort of punting everything over to them. I don't think that the, given the, how slow the ethics committee usually works, that this is going to be the thing that pushes him out of Congress. I think the criminal investigations mm-hmm. are much more serious. But you have seen, I think, even more Republicans realize that this is not someone you want to be associated with. Two months into the year, he hasn't done anything to, to burnish his reputation or to clear his name. And in fact, it just seems to be headed in the opposite direction. And, and quickly, Rick, uh, is there political signaling here from Republicans who I imagine some see Santos as a liability? Yeah, look, if they didn't need the numbers so badly, the, the head in, in the majority for Kevin McCarthy, I think he'd be gone already, frankly. He's already been isolated. He doesn't serve on any committees. And you've heard Speaker McCarthy just in the last few days say that uh, he's not so sure he'd be supporting him for re-election. Uh, maybe an obvious statement, but uh, still a year and a half before, uh, before any re-election. It's a, it's a pretty strong statement. It's Rick Klein, political director at ABC News, and Francesca Chambers, White House correspondent at USA Today. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Well, what happens in Washington, of course, impacts people across the country. And this week, lawmakers let lapse a pandemic-era boost to SNAP sometimes called food stamps, that had been helping millions of Americans afford groceries. After the break, Peter speaks with two people who are feeling the pinch, the head of a food bank and one woman who's struggling to make ends meet. Stick around. During the pandemic, millions of Americans got extra money for groceries each month through a government program known as SNAP. But now those extra benefits are going away. Starting this month, an average household is losing $95 a month, and in some cases it's going to be much more than that. This comes at a time when wages can't keep up with high inflation. Food prices have soared 10% from a year ago. Earlier today, I spoke with uh, Michael Flood, CEO of the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. To uh, have this cut occur now, and also with the impact of inflation, uh, it's really a double whammy for these families and individuals. And that's putting more pressure on the food bank, our partner agencies, in trying to provide as much food to people who are coming. Well, a lot of people are going to say, listen, these benefits were for the pandemic. The crisis of the pandemic is over But can you give us a sense of what it means for people to lose even $95 from their food budget? It causes a lot of anxiety. A lot of households have children in them. Some have older adults. Some are just individuals, perhaps dealing with some type of disability. And, you know, to have that type of cut happen for many overnight, they they weren't necessarily following things closely in terms of the benefit levels and what was happening We certainly are appealing for Congress and the administration to do what they can to ease this blow. But, you know, we will do what we can to provide help to to people who need it. And to the critics who say it's a handout? Well, I I would say it's a moral imperative, and it, it makes also common sense for us to ensure that Americans have access to nutritious food. It makes us a stronger and more productive country, and it's the right thing to do. Michael Flood is the CEO of the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, these cuts are going to hit home for about 16 million people who depend on SNAP benefits to feed themselves and their families. Gina Lee is one of them. She's a single mom in Reading, Pennsylvania. Gina, hello. Thank you. Hello. And I'm sorry to hear it's been kind of a tough time lately. I understand 
that you used to get $513 a month, but now it's down to $300? What's losing that extra money meant for you and your family? Well, I have a teenage daughter that I have to feed. Thank God she gets food from school, and we just try and save as much as possible with the food that we have to last us a whole month. But if it doesn't last me a whole month, then I have to talk to family members and reach out to them to help pay for groceries to last me till I get my next round of food stamps again. Hmm. But grocery prices are outrageous. Yeah. Walk me through a typical grocery store visit. I mean, what kind of food have you struggled to afford? I can't afford hamburger, chicken, lunch meat, cereals, eggs, milk. That seems about just about the most that I noticed lately that has gone up. Yeah. Well, that list you just gave me, um, those are the staples right? Those are important things for a family to have. Is going to the grocery store a stressful experience for you? Yes, very. I feel like I'm not doing enough to provide for my daughter for a whole entire month. And then um, she's like, mom, we need this and mom, we need that. Um, I'm like, I have to apologize to her and say, I'm sorry, honey, we're just going to have to wait till our next SNAP benefit comes through so we can Mm -hmm. get the necessities that we need. Have you been able to work? No, I'm disabled. Mm -hmm. So what's the plan here, Gina? Um, Do you think you're going to find a way to, to make up for the lost money so that your family can get enough to eat? I'm hoping I get approved for disability. I have Social Security through my ex-husband, but that ends in May because my daughter turns 16. So if I don't get approved for disability, I won't even be able to buy household necessities. Have you been going to the food bank more often? I know I hear they're very busy lately. Yes, I have a friend who has been a great help to me with the Reading Food Bank here. And she has been giving me a lot of places that I can go. But with my disability, I'm not able to drive. And trying to find somebody to help me go to these places is very hard on me. Mm. Well, thank goodness you've got a good friend, but I'm I'm thinking that with inflation and the price of groceries and the loss of these benefits, that, that a lot of other people are having a hard time too. Oh, yeah. What about that? Are your friends and neighbors struggling? Yes. Uh, I have a neighbor who has three children, and she's struggling, and she even has a part-time job, and she's still having a hard time getting her her food for her three kids. Mm. At the same time, there's going to be people listening who've never experienced what you have. Could you describe what you feel when you're not able to afford a meal for you and your family? I feel like crying. I just want to sit down and curl up in a hole and cry because I feel like I'm leaving my child down that I'm not being a good parent to her. 
and she doesn't deserve that. I'm sorry you're carrying that weight. So if you were talking to someone more powerful than me today, the president of the United States or, or a member of Congress, what would you say to them? I would ask them to please bring it back. There's a lot of people struggling that need it, especially single parents. I just wish they would bring this extra food stamps back and they would have never stopped it. Gina Lee is a single mom in Reading, Pennsylvania, lost out on about $213 a month when the extra SNAP benefits ran out on March 1st. Gina, thank you. Good luck. Thank you. After the break, celebrating the life, legacy, and music of Wayne Shorter. That's jazz legend and saxophonist Wayne Shorter playing one of his hits, Speak No Evil. Shorter died yesterday at the age of 89. His work and compositions shaped jazz for over 50 years. And to help us remember his contributions to music, we've called NPR music commentator Michelle Mercer. She's also author of Footprints, The Life and Work of Wayne Shorter. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for having me, Peter. Wayne Shorter's career spanned more than half of a century, but early on he worked alongside legends like Miles Davis. How did those early days shape his career? Wayne was a hero to everyone in the jazz world, largely because of that history. You know, his career in jazz evolved with jazz over the 20th century. You know, he was one of its architects. He started playing music, saxophone, as a teen in the 1940s when bebop still reigned supreme. And Mm. in those formative years, he really identified profoundly with the imagination and originality of bebop, you know, with its music and culture. And then he moved on to the Miles Davis group in 1964. And... I think there, that's where he he really sort of coalesced into Wayne Shorter, the composer that we knew for the rest of his career. Hmm. In 2013, he spoke with NPR. Let's listen here to Wayne Shorter reflect on his music. Jazz shouldn't have any mandates. Jazz is not supposed to be something that you're required to sound like jazz. For me, the, the word jazz means I dare you. I dare you. What do you think he meant by that? Well, you know, it's interesting. We we call these Wayne-isms. Um, Wayne <laughs> loved to speak in allegory, in riddles, in one-liners. One time on tour, he had a, a Q&A with some young music students, and one of the students innocently asked Wayne where he liked to play music most. And he meant, you know, in concert halls or clubs or outdoors. And Wayne's answer was classic Wayne. He said, you can't worry about your environment or let a setting impact or control your performance. Because if you think there's an ideal place to play music, you should know there's a little cat sitting on a suitcase waiting for you, all packed. That little cat is named Karma. And he's saying, where are we going next? (laughs) So 
you know, this was a pretty reasonable standard question, but Wayne's answer was not. Characteristically, you know, he used humor and metaphor to turn his answer into a little Buddhist consciousness-raising session. Wow. Let's listen to some more of the music. This is Footprints. made that music so good, so innovative? I think what is so unique about Wayne as a composer is that no matter who's playing his song, one of his songs, one of his tunes, it still sounds like him. And uh, I think what's so remarkable about his melodies and harmonies is how they can take people places in their imagination that um, they didn't expect. So he, he composes these simple even singable melodies that no one could create and then he juxtaposes those melodies with harmonies that kind of come from uh, an entirely different direction and it just makes the tunes come alive in a very unique light. Now you wrote a book about Wayne Shorter. I, I imagine you knew him pretty well. What were you hearing from his friends and family in, in the final days? You know, in Wayne's final days, as his family and close friends were exchanging our final messages of love with him, he said, it's time to go get a new body and come back to continue the mission. (laughs) And in Wayne's Buddhist perspective, you know, there are no beginnings, there are no endings. For him, this lifetime was one of many lifetimes. Um, Death is a transition. It's, you know, almost just like a costume change for the next act or the next phase. But, you know, Wayne Shorter was a -a one-of-a-kind character. And I think because of how he made improvisation a way of life, because of his uncompromising and unique artistic vision, and because of his deep history in the jazz world, his passing does leave a void in the culture. So, What I'm hearing from his friends and colleagues is a sense of responsibility to kind of step up and practice those Wayne-like qualities themselves, you know, as well as they can. So, you know, Wayne Shorter has left us with the inspiration to realize ourselves, our art and lives, even if we can only do it a fraction as beautifully as he realized his art and life. But, you know, what what an incredible legacy that is. Michelle Mercer is author of Footprints, the life and work of Wayne Shorter, the jazz legend who died yesterday at the age of 89. Michelle, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Wayne Shorter on Palladium, one of the tunes he composed for the group Weather Report. Head to hereandnow.org for more stories. With all the tough talk out of D.C. about countering China, we've got another view, one that challenges the Washington consensus. Only looking at policy with an eye toward, is this going to be tough on China, will lead to, first, an overemphasis on symbolism rather than substantively moving the needle. And it's likely to continue to lead us toward an avoidable conflict, even war with China. You can find that whole conversation at hereandnow.org. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Catherine Swartz, and Kalyani Saxena. 
Our editors are Todd Munt, Gabe Bullard, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Mike, me, and Max Liebman. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll be back Monday. Monday.